Hello, everyone, and welcome to Minute 34 of Season 3 of Movie Rob Minute, the daily podcast where we yippee our way through the 1988 Bruce Willis action movie Die Hard, one minute at a time. I'm Rob, and joining me once again today is Matthew Simpson of Awesome Friday. Welcome back, Matthew. Thank you very much. This has been very fun. I'm looking forward to keeping doing it. All right, just uh, maybe it should take about two, two and a half hours, you know, and just for the five mechanicals, though. <laughs> uh, well, you know, it's uh, you can't do the last one locally either, so we have to figure something else out. Right, exactly. So, um, <laughs> minute thirty-four begins with the uh, three busy terrorists uh, working their way through the stuff on the roof, and ends with Hans getting lost in thought. So we continue the, the, the rest of the scene that we ended yesterday's minute on where we have Marco Heinrich and Uli, uh, you know, planting their, their detonations and, and wires and all that stuff. I mean, it, that actually takes up uh, a fair chunk of this minute, just watching them, you know, uh, work, work together. You know, mm-hmm. we see at one point that, uh, I mean, first of all, they, they work well as a team, you know, the, the dialogue is very sparse because we hear, you know, them say here, Uli, you know, it's like tossing, yeah. you know, like very, very, very little really going on here uh, yeah, from, they, they from all... a dialogue perspective. But but from a uh, exposition perspective, this is great because we see that this is hard work. This isn't something that, that uh, is very trivial, you know, and they, and they want us to realize that that despite the fact that, that we now know these these are not terrorists, okay, what they are doing is something that's very complicated. And they're, you know, that the plan is set really well. Yeah, and they all seem to be, you know, professionals hired for their specific skills. Right. Uh, and you're right, I think I would have to go back and watch it again, but the, all this setup takes up probably like a quarter or maybe even a third of this minute of just them. It takes up about 20, and, I think it's about 20 seconds. Yeah. And it's just them laying out detonation cord and planting C4 in places and climbing on pipes and putting, like it's all, um, it's very physical. What's the right also. word here? It's very physical. It's also, um, you might go so far as to call it like, uh, like a, like almost like a dance as they're sort of moving all this stuff around, it's all very precise and everyone seems to understand exactly what to do. Like it makes clear that they are all, you know, very good at what they're trying to do. Well, that's actually the reason probably why uh, Hans wanted to send Carl up there, because if it's, if it's a dance, you know, mm-hmm. Alexander Gudnov was a dancer. So there that's you true. go. <laughs> he was uh, the, the primo danseur of the uh, Moscow ballet. Was it one of the, the German that that I don't remember of, of which ballet, but uh, he was definitely connected to it. There's no question yeah. about that. But it's just pretty funny that, that it's pretty. It, it it just reminded me of it when you said that the what they're doing makes them look like they're dancing around, which which is great. You know, mm-hmm. uh, I mean, I love, for instance, uh, Crouching Tiger, uh, Hidden Dragon, which you know all of the fight scenes look like everyone is dancing. Mm-hmm. You know, because it's, it's done so fluidly and smoothly and stuff like that. I mean, I'm not a fan of, of watching movies about dancing and stuff like that. But when you do things like that, it makes a lot of sense. You know, yep. and, and this is this 
if you look at the way that they are moving around, they're they're moving around very uh, fluidly and and swiftly, you know, between the pipes and uh, you know the way that they're doing everything here just just works really well. So yeah, I, I think you could classify that as uh, a form of dancing. You know, it's a I don't know terrorist dancing. What would you call that? <laughs> well, thief dancing. Thief dancing. Uh, there you go. Yeah. I just looked it up. He he was a member of the Bolshoi, and he was the premier danceur, and he defected from the USSR to the United States in 1979. Ooh. So that's always fun. Yeah. It's very true. So then the, the after after we get to see all of this this uh, uh, explosive ex, explosive charges uh, exposition. I guess you can say. So they move us back to the the vault, and we we get to see, you know, Theo and and Hans walk into the area with the vault, and uh, Hans seems very deep in deep in thought, and Theo just starts talking to him and goes, "Well, thirty minutes to break the code, two hours, two and a half hours for the five mechanicals at the minimum. The seventh lock, however, is out of my hands." And I mean the the way. First of all, I, I like the fact that the way that they're doing this is to to basically give, tell us their plan, you know, mm-hmm. or their their plan from a technical perspective. You know, what it is what is it that we're planning on doing? We're gonna, you know, we have to break all these codes and we have to, you know, get through the mechanical. What is a mechanical? My assumption is, you know, they're talking about, you know, when you, when you're, you know, breaking into a safe. You know mm-hmm. that that would that's what I would think that they're talking about here. That that. You know, you have to get through the, you know, the the diamonds or whatever, whatever you want to call them. You know, yeah, whether, in, you're, whether you're cracking the code, whether you're cracking the, the combination or drilling, right. drilling out the the right. lock. Um, yeah. yeah, that's my my understanding too. Yeah, but I mean, in in general, everything that Theo is saying here is pretty much gibberish. You know, it's 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 uh, you know, technical jargon and gibberish. That's what I would call it. You know, we're, yeah, we're not great, really uh, supposed to understand what it is that they're they're trying to do here. Yeah, there's a great Star Trek script term, uh, technobabble, <laughs> which you could definitely apply to this scene. Yeah, for sure. You know, um, I, I I would agree with that. It it, it is techno. I've, I've heard the term technobabble before, and yes, that that makes a lot of sense. That that's what he's doing here. I mean, it's it it makes sense when you think about what he's talking about, but we don't really know what he's talking about. You know, for him to say, okay, I got to break the code and then I have, you know, to get through the five mechanicals and that's taking a few hours and then the seventh lock and whatever. You know, it's like, I mean, uh, Takagi mentioned, I think seven, uh, I think it was mentioned earlier this week about seven locks, wasn't it? Yeah. That even if I gave when, you the code, when... you still need to get through the, the other locks. Here, right. Yeah, you... so there's seven safeguards on the vault. Right. Yeah, it's only one. Of, he says, I think he says it's only one of seven. Right. And then Gruber says, well, then there's no reason not to give it to us. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it, it's 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 nice for them to continue along with 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 this, you know, to keep to keep the continuity of the fact that there are seven different locks that they need to get through. You know, mm-hmm. what exactly are each of these locks? Who knows? You know, yeah. Huh. Doesn't but, really matter either. I exactly. Mean, we just need to, we just need to know how long it takes. Correct. How it just it just helps establish the timeline of of the film. How, and, and even even but but again he says at the minimum. 
And, you know, we, we never really know until what time this, you know, at what time everything is finished. We know that this it's approximately now, let's say seven, eight o'clock at night, something like that. Mm-hmm. You know, that that's about as, as you know, as, as close as we can get to it. I mean, we know that, that, uh, that sunset on uh, December 24th, 1988 was at 450. Okay, so John showed up at Nakatomi at about a quarter to five. Mm-hmm. Okay, so trying to infer how much time passed and stuff like that. So I would say you could, it's probably around seven, seven thirty right now, something like that. Sure. At the latest, it's probably it might even be earlier. You never know. It might be. I would still say that you know, knowing that he needs minimum, so he, basically he says three hours, right? Half an hour for the code, and then two and a half hours for the five mechanical locks. So right. that's going to take us to like 10, 1030 at night. Right. And even if that isn't the timeline of the film, it is the timeline of how long they need to like, say the police show up two minutes later, they need to stall for that long. Right. Like it does create a, a time pressure for the terrorists that John is actively disrupting for the right. rest of the film. But I actually, I think it does make sense that, that it should be around 10 o'clock because one of the arguments later when they want to cut the power is the fact that, that it's Christmas Eve, you know, everyone's, you know, with their families at this point. So it can't be mm-hmm. like two o'clock in the morning. It still needs to be at a relatively normal hour to to believe that people are with their families, you know, and, and that, you know, losing power is going to affect them. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, 10 o'clock would definitely be the time when kids are in bed and parents are having a before-bed cocktail or maybe wrapping some last-minute presents, that kind of thing. Yeah, could be. Yeah. So, basically, you know, as as the, uh, you know, first of all, we see another one of the villains standing by waiting to, to assist. You know, this, mm-hmm. uh, I believe his name is Kristoff. Yeah, standing by to assist uh, yeah, he, he's he's a guy who we only see in the vault. You know, throughout yes. the rest of the movie, the only time we'll see him is in the vault, and and uh, he actually uh, gets saved because of the fact that he was in the vault. You know, mm-hmm. but, but we'll get there in many months from now when we discuss that. <laughs> yeah, and uh, he just seems to be there to help to be Theo's like gopher, basically, yeah. or lackey. Yeah, and I mean, Scott. Makes... The shot of the room is amazing. I mean, it's it's a it's a huge vault, you know. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I still remember on one of the DVDs that I had of, of this movie, and I've, I've had numerous versions of this of the DVD over the years. So they had like a little uh, short that explains the difference between uh, uh, widescreen and pan and scan, and they use mm-hmm. this this scene mm-hmm. where. You know, it shows the vault, and you know it's very different. Actually, no, I'm sorry. They they use the scene when the vault gets opened, but they they show the vault in that. Mm-hmm. And it, you know, here because we're, we're watching it in widescreen, the room looks so much more enormous than if you were doing it in pan and scan. Absolutely, uh, and especially when they they walk into the room and the camera kind of comes around on the vault. Yeah. Uh, it's kind of an impressive reveal, actually, because it's a really well laid out room. It looks very well appointed, and then this huge door just is revealed, and you realize that, like, oh, the reason he's saying it's going to take three hours is that that door looks not just big in terms of like wide and tall, but like it looks impenetrable. Yeah, like it looks 
thick and uh, difficult to get through. Yeah, and I love that on the outside of the vault, it looks like there are lights, and it, they, they actually look like, uh, you know, Star Trek uh, transporter uh, room tubes or something like that, <laughs> the way that they're... You know, I saw that. I saw that when I was doing my my uh, my research for the show. I was like, "Oh wow, Matthew's the perfect person to talk about, you know, a transporter room <laughs> in in uh, Nakatomi Plaza." I yeah. mean, if there was ever going to be a place in 1988 that a transporter existed, Nakatomi Plaza would probably be the place. There you go. That makes sense. <laughs> but but or in the I mean, real world, it would be like Sony headquarters or something. But you know, it's same same. Well, 20th there. Century Fox. You know, that, that's what it is. This is this is uh, you know 20th Century Fox. Uh, uh, it's 20th Century Fox's uh, home office. You know, in Century right. City. So yeah. there you go. That that's where it is. Yeah. Maybe maybe they are real real transporters. You never know. <laughs> that would be amazing. Can't wait until my commute is get out of bed and step on a pad. <laughs> right and i mean then we we get a shot of the there's like a a computer console or a digital console right on the outside of the vault where where we see things moving along there we don't we don't know what's written there we you know it's we're we're too far away to actually tell what's going on but it it is it looks very futuristic for 1988 the way i think it's also again it's 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 the controls to for the transporter so there you go yeah yeah, for sure. And it's also, I think it's actually a nice piece of visual storytelling. They've been talking enough about having to break a code that even without getting a close-up on that screen, you know exactly what it's for and what was about to happen with it, right? Yeah. Um, it's the, the film is very well laid out that way. There's very few things that don't have a ton of setup ahead of right. their reveals, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that... Uh, Kuleshov effect of like you know two shots having more meaning than uh, like the the inferred meaning between two shots. Yeah. Uh, this film is very good at that. It's very economical would be a word for it. I think. Yeah, that's definitely true. And then uh, you know we we see that that Hans was sort of paying attention to to, to Theo, but not really. You know, is it? You think he's like awestruck by the way that the, that this uh, vault looks? Because my assumption is, is that you know he's never seen what the vault looks like. He's maybe seen the plans of the building or or and stuff, but he hasn't seen the actual room itself. And he's even even someone like Hans can be awestruck by this. Uh, that is 100% my read on the scene as well. When Theo is explaining things and Hans has to be like, I'm basically it's like, I'm sorry, I wasn't listening. Um, because he comes around the corner and sees the vault for the first time. And whether he's awestruck by the impressiveness of the vault or because he knows what's inside the vault, like he's finally, you know, just a few feet away from his goal. Right. There's definitely a feeling of he he's taking in the beauty of the moment for sure. Right. It, I mean, if this was a cartoon, we would see, like, the dollar signs in his eyes. Or they'd yeah. come out of his head and, you know, enlarge. Right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, the... So he goes, I'm sorry? And then Theo responds to him, the seventh lock. You know, like, hello, I was just mm-hmm. talking about the seventh lock. <laughs> so I love the way that Theo emphasizes it, that this is our biggest hurdle. This is what we yeah. need to get through. You know, tomorrow we'll get a little bit of an explanation as to what this seventh lock really is. 
you know, again, it'll be a little more technical babble, but we'll, we'll still, uh, you know, they'll, they'll still try and explain it to us with the whole thing, but it, it's just, uh, it's just done really well. Yeah. Everything about this scene is done really right. well. And at this, it's another moment of just, like I said, like he's about to set something up that's going to pay off in a later scene. Right. And one of the good things I like about this is it, it, it establishes for us the relationship between Theo and Hans here also. Theo is not afraid to tell Hans what he, what he, what he needs and what he wants. Mm. You know, there's no intimidation here. You know, we no, don't hear, Theo, we don't Theo. hear Theo apologizing. You know, Theo's talking and then it's Hans who's apologizing, saying, I wasn't paying attention. Not repeat what you just said. You know, it's, it's more of a, the, the relationship between the two of them is a lot more smooth. It's much smoother than one would think. Yeah, it's definitely. Uh, and as with um, Carl as well, uh, it's very much one more, more of, you know, their, their peers rather than like uh, sort of boss and subordinate. Right. Um, and probably because, you know, Theo is even just by what we've seen of him, we sort of know he's a, a whiz at this kind of stuff. And you don't you don't bring around the best and then treat him like just a regular henchman, right? Like right. he's a specialist. That's right. You, and you treat him as such. Right. But on like the other hand, taking... you still want to make sure that uh, you know things get done properly. True. But if uh, you know if I was if we were going to take bets on, let's say the the plan succeeded and they all got away, and we were going to take bets on which people were going to survive and which people were going to get killed so they had to split it up so many ways Theo would definitely be a survivor yeah <laughs> like you know him and him and Hans and Carl and I guess maybe Heinrich and Tony would be what the five probably everyone else would probably be pretty expendable yeah 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 well actually no I, I think you just even say the top three you don't even have to go beyond that everyone mm -hmm. else is expendable you know it's Hans Carl sorry you gotta well okay if Tony is Hans's brother so then you gotta go yeah. with four I, I don't know yeah. if Heinrich. I'm not sure if Heinrich would, would be on that list or not. He might be. Yeah, I'm not sure either. Actually, I only included him because he sounds German like Carl and Tony do. No, but he's the well. Tony doesn't really sound like a very German name, but whatever. That 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 goes yeah. back to the book where they're where he's I think Italian. I think this is the name yeah. comes and and Tony I think is Carl if I remember correctly from the book. Uh, I could be wrong uh, about that. Like I gotta finish rereading it <laughs> one of these days. Yeah. I've never actually read the book, but I've always kind of always meant to. Yeah. But uh, it's very different, but it, it, it has a lot of elements that were used in the script, which is what's really cool mm -hmm. when you read it. So do you have anything else you want to mention about this minute before we get to the script? No, no, I'm good. All right. So the, the script basically just has uh, it, it. It's just a few lines because obviously not that much happens in this particular minute here, but the, I love the description of the vault room. It says, Hans and Theo enter the safe room. The huge corporate safe looms in front of them. Theo places three kit bags onto a table and rolls up his sleeves. He swivels a computer console into handy reach and sits down. You know, so again, he, he still mentions you know they mentioned that that he's here sitting at some sort of console to take care of all this other, all, all, everything he's doing 
It's not the mm -hmm. two of them walking. I like the fact that they're they're walking. You know, they're doing a walk and talk. They're doing a uh, uh, a West Wing walk and talk here. Yeah, an Aaron Sorkin special. Yeah, um, which, which one? I, and yeah, I I I think that the scene definitely would not be as effective if Theo was sitting down at all. Like right. I think it's I think it works better because they're standing sort of eye to eye and. Theo is like, you know, you wonder, here's what I can do. Um, and the thing, the one thing I can't, and it's sort of important that they're on equal footing for that. Yeah. And then there's a slight uh, discrepancy in what Theo says in the script. He goes 30 minutes to break the code, two hours for the five mechanicals. So, you know, he doesn't say two, two and a half. He's, he's mm. being much more precise but I like the fact that in the, the final cut, he's less precise because he's, he's, he's showing that, you know, I'm going to do my best, but it could take two hours. It could take two and a half hours. You know, there's, there's certain things that are beyond my control. Yeah, exactly. Like the plans might not be complete or exactly what they're expecting yeah. uh, or something might've been reinforced or something that's a, uh... You know, it's uh, also just expectations management. You know, like if it takes me a little longer, it takes me a little longer. Like it's just, right. it's going to take as long as it's going to, as it's going to take. Yeah. Right. So that's pretty much the, the only discrepancies that they have here in the script. All right. So every Thursday we have a segment called Off the Beaten Track Holiday Edition, where either my guest or myself will give a little story about an adventure, a misadventure, or something fun that might have happened to one of us on on a. Uh, uh, over over some sort of holiday. So uh, today, everyone's going to get another story from me. So I remember as a kid. Now, you know, anyone who knows me, they they know that I'm a religious Jew. So you know, I I, I don't celebrate Christmas. And so um, I remember as a kid. You know, people always make jokes that 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 Jews go out to uh, Chinese restaurants on uh, on Christmas Eve. But we never did that. What we did is when, when I was a kid on Christmas Eve, that was the night we always went to the movie theater. The movie theater was empty. It was always open, but it was empty. And the one movie that, that, that I, that always stands out in my mind that I saw on Christmas Eve was Clue. Okay. I remember that, that Clue came out in 1985. Uh, so I was 11 at the time. And I remember the, you know, the big, thrill of going to see clue at the time was is that you know it was advertised they have three different endings and depending on which viewing you went to or which theater you went to you would get a different ending for that particular movie and uh randomly the the one we went to was ending number c which was the ending where everybody did it okay so <laughs> now I've, I've seen clue numerous times since then first of all i loved watching it you know i don't I'd always played, you know, we played the games all the time and to be able to see them take a board game and make a, a, a story and a movie out of it was, was great to, to watch. You know, uh, now I can appreciate it a lot more than I could when I was 11, obviously, because now I know all the actors and I know everything, you know, I know a lot more about the game of Clue and how things work. Yeah. But what, what's, what's great is when I, when I rewatch it now, so, you know, you on the on on the the final cut whether it's on video or or dvd or whether it's in a digital copy so you know they put all three endings together you know they show you the first ending and then they say well that could have happened but maybe this happened and then they have the second ending and then they go well maybe that also could have happened but this is what really happened 
And I always find the satisfaction to the fact that the version that they claim is what really happened is the one that I saw in the theater. So for me, that was always the, 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 the true ending to the movie. So the way that they put it together, you know, that, that in the end, it's every one of the characters, you know, murdered somebody. Uh, sorry to spoil it for anyone who hasn't seen Clue at this point. But uh, so I, I just like the way that they did that. And for me, that that's a uh, I guess you can say that that's a Christmas memory for for someone like me who doesn't celebrate Christmas. So that's, I'm sort of envious, to be totally honest, because um, I wasn't I wasn't old enough to see it when it came out in theaters. But I have seen Clue roughly a bazillion times and I've only ever seen it with all three endings and I'm always sort of impressed at how ambitious that plan would have been to release the movie three different ways uh, in the 80s like now it seems like it'd be a really easy thing to do but in the 80s that means cutting three different versions of the print right so yeah uh, but uh, and also I kind of wonder how it would play without the all three endings because I've only ever seen it with all three endings. So. Right. Well, that's the thing. I've never seen. I've never seen the other two endings on their own either. That's the thing. Yeah. You know, I because I, I wasn't going to go spend money to go see it again because I've already seen the movie and I've seen the real ending. You know, why do I want to see another ending? <laughs> that type of thing. And and again, it, it came out months later. You know, uh, on video, so I was able to then see all of the the endings that the or was on cable or whatever. You know, so I saw all the endings that you know just a few months later. But uh, yeah. yeah, no, there. That's one of the the things that, that that I always miss the nostalgia of being able to see certain things in the theater. Like you mentioned before, that you saw Die Hard, you know, on Christmas, you know, in your in in your local theater theater, just you know, ten fifteen years ago. You know, for me, I was yeah. I I'd love to do that. I'd love to be able to you know see some great movies once again in the theater. You know, have that experience again. I mean, I I, I brought this up in the past, but. Uh, uh, probably last season I brought this up, but I remember that when Saving Private Ryan came out, I saw it in the theater and I loved it. I was amazed by it. And a few weeks later, a friend of mine called me up and said, you want to go, go see Saving Private Ryan with me? And I said, I already saw it. And he goes, you definitely want to come see it with me again. He said, this is a movie that we will never have the opportunity to see uh, on such a large screen again. And we should take the opportunity of being able to see it again. Again, I love Saving Private Ryan. It's one of my favorite movies. I, you know, I don't mind watching it on any size screen. That doesn't make a difference. But there definitely is something to seeing it on, you know, the big screen. You know, there's no question about that. Yep. You know, there's something magical about it, isn't there? Yeah, and it's it's unfortunate that. That it, and it doesn't matter where you live. Maybe LA, it's different from from what I remember. You know, my friend Richard Kirkham uh, talks about that 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 in LA there are tons of theaters that show movies. You know, on the big screen again. You know, things that are older. But in most yep. cities, it's it's rare. You'll get you'll get something every once in a while. You know, it's not yeah. not a common thing. So you know, what can you do? Well, at least we get to still see the movies. You know, even if you don't get to see them True. on the big screen. Well, if you ever make it to Vancouver, um, one thing that happens every summer is that the Vancouver Symphony Orchestra puts on movies and they play the score live. Oh, yeah. So, I, I, I saw Raiders that way uh, a few years yeah. back. Um, I, I would love to – there's tons of movies that uh, – I'm, I'm – um, 
I mean, I see all the time, all these different uh, movies that they, you know, they've done, the, you know, the, the original trilogy of Star Wars and they've, they've done Back to the Future. I've seen, I've, I've heard that they do, they've done The Godfather. You know, there, there's like a group of movies that they constantly do over and over. Uh, you know, different symphonies uh, play them. So, yeah. yeah that, the, one, of the, one of the best ones I ever saw was they did uh, The Wizard of Oz. Ooh. It was, uh, it was wonderful to watch with, with the symphony line. Interesting. The wonderful Wizard of Oz. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Great. Yeah, it was great. All right. So, Matthew, you want to once again tell people how they can get in touch with you? Yes. The best way to find me online is to check out our website, which is awesomefriday.ca. Uh, you can find all of our writing and our podcast. And the podcast can be found pretty much anywhere that you listen to, can listen to podcasts. You can find us on the socials at Awesome Friday CA on Instagram and on Twitter and Awesome Friday on Facebook. And you can find me mostly on Twitter at SmatthewAF. All right. And finding me once again is quite simple. Just do a quick search for Move Around Minute. You can find me on Twitter. You can find me on Facebook. And you can go to my website, moveyouroundminute.com. So, Matthew, you feel like coming back again tomorrow to finish off the week? Sure do. All right. Excellent. So until tomorrow, yippee-ki-yay. Yippee-ki-yay. 